What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Hi and welcome. We are back in the studios of 94.9 Main FM. I'm Steve Proposh, editor of Trouble Magazine. And I'm Dr. Mark Allerton. And you are in deep trouble. So, Mark, this episode we have Manisha Anjali, a Fijian Indian poet. Oh, yeah, I'm going to talk to Manisha about her work, Sugarcane Woman, as well as the history of indenture for the Indians in Fiji from British colonisation, and also talk about the Indian patriarchy and the caste system. Right, so this is a, a very well-known story. I'm really interested to hear about this. And I did see uh, Manisha perform at the Newstead Short Story Tattoo. Do you think we'll get a poetry reading out of this episode? I believe we will. Excellent. Well, look, let's get into it. Here's Manisha Anjali on Deep Trouble. Manisha, the first thing I'd like to talk to you about, I know that your background is a Fijian, Indian Fijian background. So I'd like to find out what it was like growing up in a Fijian Indian family. You, you, did you grow up in Fiji or somewhere else? Yes, I grew up in Fiji. I was born in Suva, the capital city, and I lived there until I was about eight years old. I had a really lovely tropical childhood. Living in a bicultural society was amazing, surrounded by so many languages and food, different sorts of people. I went to a really multicultural school. When I was eight years old, we moved to New Zealand. Oh, what were your parents like? My parents. My mum is bright, bubbly, really fiery. My father is quiet, reserved. Yeah, complete opposites in terms of personalities. And I think, I feel like I embody both of them, like 50-50. What are their backgrounds, educational backgrounds, uh, vocational work? Oh, my mother grew up on a tiny island called Davuni, where people live on one half of the island. She didn't have much of an education. She had to work in the fields, on the farm, help out with jobs and stuff. So education wasn't the biggest priority for her. But she is educated a little bit. She does admin at a hospital. My dad is a journalist and has been since he was 19 years old. He's currently an editor at a newspaper in New Zealand. What's your earliest childhood memory, the most powerful memory that you have? It would be seeing my great-grandfather for the first time. It was at his funeral, and I just remember his body covered in tropical flowers, and he had cotton wool stuffed in his nostrils, and there were ladies all around him crying. I remember not thinking that much of it. I wasn't affected by it, but I'll never forget. I'll never forget it. I was probably three or four years old. What about your grandmother? My maternal grandmother was a seamstress and also worked on the sugarcane farms. 
With your maternal grandmother that worked in sugarcane, your first collection is Sugarcane Woman. I suppose I'm interested because Indians who live in Fiji were brought there during British colonisation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So between 1879 and 1919, Indian labourers were contracted by the Australian-owned Colonial Sugar Refining Company to come to Fiji and work on the sugarcane plantations A lot of them were actually tricked into going there. They were promised paradise and buckets of gold and a gorgeous new life because a lot of them had it pretty hard in India. So they came willingly. However, what they actually experienced was slave-like conditions. They were beaten, starved, housed in the most awful conditions, the, the coolie lines. And I believe the women had it the hardest as they were doubly colonized by imperialism, but also the Indian patriarchy. Also, even the children who were born in the fields weren't exempt from that brutal cycle of of labor and and punishment, really. Indenture ended in 1919 and a lot of Indians stayed in Fiji. Some of them went back um, my great-grandfather, who I was just talking about, is from Dead with the Flowers. He actually came to Fiji as a, a free man. He was from a village in Rajasthan. He asked them for some money to buy some sugar. He was 16 years old, and then he ran away, somehow went to Calcutta, jumped on a boat, and went to Fiji to this remote island called Davuni. And it's it's an amazing story. But that's how my family started. The other thing that struck me was that you talked about Indian women in the society suffered from not only British imperialism, but the Indian patriarchy and possibly also the caste system. And what's it like living as an Indian within Fiji today? Well, it's it's interesting because with the Indians going to Fiji, the caste system actually did kind of die on the ships. It took three months to go from India to Fiji and you had people from every single caste all lumped together in a boat and they found it problematic within themselves. You know, if you're a Brahmin, you're like, I can't even eat next to this low life, but that's what happened. Yes, they were all put together and so they had no choice. They were all treated the same as well. So I've found out the cast names of various members of my family and they're all completely different and that's something that would never happen in India. Like you would never have a Brahmin marrying an untouchable, but that's my father's side of the family. That's what happened. So I think that is one of the cool things about being Indo-Fijian is the death of caste. The other issue was around that colonisation had kind of wiped out a cultural memory to some extent and a lot of your work is to do with women and their connection to mythology. I feel like there's a lot of cultural memory that hasn't been wiped out and particularly for those that have continued with Hinduism, Hinduism is such a strong, pervasive force. And so 
full of mythology and archetypes and ancient symbology that is very much still there. Are you religious? I'm not sure if I'm religious, but I am I'm obsessed with religion and particularly Hinduism. I'm just so fascinated by all the rituals, incantations, the way that people worship, mass worship. When I look at my mother's devotion to deities and my grandmother reading ancient texts, like I'm really drawn to that and why people do that. I don't engage in any kind of ritual myself, but I study it. Is the mythological element to it important? I think I've always been obsessed with mythology and archetypes and I do love to work with existing symbols and ancient narrative devices. I feel like it helps me look at the bigger picture and what connects us as humans throughout the ages as opposed to concentrating on day-to-day things that happen in, in our time alone you know, studying dream symbology or, or mythological characters can really tell us a lot about ourselves. What have you learned about yourself from this? I think, again, it's about being a part of the bigger picture and not getting lost in the small details. When you can see yourself as, as a piece of the cosmos as opposed to, I am this individual. I think I, re- I read one of your works, I think, called... Fever dreams, fever dreams. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a a grandmother in that called Ari, who locks the children in the cupboard to kind of cure them of some unnamed illness. So that story, fever dreams, is it's actually about my father's childhood, and he comes from a family of seven children. And they would get measles or chicken pox one by one, as you do when you're a child. And his grandmother would lock the sick child away for a little bit until they were better. It wasn't a very favorable depiction of the grandmother, of Ari. I think from a child's perspective, you, you wouldn't be down with that. You know, you just want to go out and play and be in the sunshine. She's doing something that's probably good for you. It might be a bit strange, but you're all right in the end. Coming back to the conservative idea, like arranged marriages and things like that, do you come from a family culture of that? Not that I know of. No, it's it's not an issue for me at all. Do you have any connection to that conservative element within Indian culture? Yeah, I went to India for the first time a couple of years ago and I definitely experienced the conservatism. Yeah, I went with my partner at the time who I wasn't married to and we had to constantly prove that we were. Yeah, so that was a a strange thing for me to do and also just to sort of step back and being an Indian woman in India, you're you're treated a certain way. You really are treated as a a second-class citizen and that was a whole other experience as well. Like you never get served first. If you're with a man, you know, they, they get served their food first or people would never address me directly. They would address him, so it's things like that.
It made me develop a thicker skin and it made me realize that I'd spent my life living in a really privileged sort of way where I didn't have to constantly prove myself. It made me realize how lucky I was and and how hard it is for so many people experiencing that every day. Yeah, I just had to develop ways to, to deal with it, to get used to it. Did it make you feel angry? Definitely. It was, it was very disempowering, but it's things like that that help you grow. The biggest lesson I learned from it is that it was another type of truth about life, that the world doesn't care about you. I feel like living in Australia, you've, there's this idea that if you're a good person and you work hard, you'll be rewarded. You can make a lot of money. You can be whatever you want to be. But you go somewhere like India and actually the loveliest, most hardest working people don't have anything and are screwed over by society and religion and, and so many other forces. That was a, a huge realization for me. Yeah, I mean, that was that's my experience as well. I think whenever you go to a different country, particularly countries that have parts of society to them that are third world or fourth world, you end up with what they used to call culture shock. And you do begin to realise if you're born into a richer, more sort of privileged country that, that you've sort of won the latitude lottery. Your family sounds like they're religious, but you're not. You're interested in the mythology of it. But are you an atheist? No. I mean, I don't know what's out there. I don't believe in nothing. But I mean, do I believe in in spirits, energies, ghosts, reincarnation? I think yes. I don't like the idea of there being nothing when I die. It's also a fear of uh, losing people around me and I think having that idea of knowing that you'll see them again in, an, in another world in another life is definitely more comforting than that's it that's the end and there's there's nothing else to it oh I think it's just too sad to, to just have nothing what is your experience of losing people have you lost people a lot of family members have died no one that I was terribly close to. I have lost a couple of friends that I was pretty close to. Well, the first time it happened, it was absolutely heartbreaking. And I was really upset, but talking to my father helped me gain a new perspective on, on life and death and the nature of it all. He just kind of said, look, I've lost a lot of people in my life, like both of my parents are dead. One day I'm going to die too. You just have to accept that this is a part of life and you're going to lose a lot more people as you get older and you can't be this dramatic about it. So, <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, I understand it really. I was dramatic with that first friend that died, yeah. I was just moping around being really sad and just overthinking death, I guess, and that, that particular death. That specific situation, he'd called me that afternoon and said, hey, do you want to hang out? 
And I said, no, I'm busy. I'm actually doing this other thing. And then a few hours later, he died. So I think it was that particular moment that really that I couldn't let go of. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Manisha Anjali. In terms of writing, who's your greatest literary influence? I love the works of Khalil Gibran, John Poulet, Entuzaki Shanje, Zora Neale Hurston. Also filmmakers like Alejandro Khodorovsky, Sergei Padyanov. I guess also ancient Hindu devotional poets, Mirabai, Akka Mahadevi, and all the ancient Hindu texts lately I've been looking at representations of hell and damnation from some old Sanskrit texts that um, have kept me occupied all summer. I guess also just dream symbology resources like the Rider Waite tarot deck or, or Carl Jung's Man and His Symbols. So yeah, I had the sense that Jung was an important influence. But what do you take away from Carl Jung? The biggest thing I take away is the idea that we are all connected through certain archetypes and symbols. Yeah, and that we all do have very similar dreams, our lives have similar themes, and yeah, there is a collective unconscious, and it's it's not a static thing. It, it changes with the people, with the times. It's It's important to be aware of that. It seems as though that there's a um, a theme of looking for meaning and connection. I'm always trying to create meaning from something. I guess that's where all the symbology comes from. I think without it, life's too sad. Sadness is important, but it's not good to be sad all the time. I think with mythology, religious stories and symbology, it just adds that little bit of magic to everyone's lives. And I think that's important. I guess I'm trying to resurrect that in my own way. Resurrect it. So you feel as though there's a lack of that? I think in contemporary culture, there can be a lack of that. And I think there's definitely been a lack of that in my own life because I haven't been a religious person but if I look at someone like my grandma, she lives in that world of stories and superstition and she's she's right there, you know, telling you you have to tie up your hair at night or the devil will get jealous and take you. It's She lives in a magical world and I guess I'm trying to get to it. You're also kind of living between two worlds though as well, aren't you? Because it's sort of like the person who does the rituals but goes, well, I'm not really sure that I believe an actual deity exists, but I kind of like the story. Does that stop you from connecting to the meaning in the same way? No, I don't think that stops me from connecting to the meaning. Yeah, I've I've always been drawn to religious stories since I was a kid and I think that hasn't left me. Well, the one that stands out is the Ramayan. That's probably the most popular epic poem in Fiji. 
and that will sort of get played out and it's really a social occasion for the community and everyone gets together for a few days and absorb the epic poetry, the stories and and hang out with each other. Are there any texts that have meaning to you you, you recite verbatim? What about your own work? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess the most recent piece that I've been working on, The Song of the Crocodile, it's a performance text. It's an epic choreo poem which focuses on the sort of folk culture and resistance practices of three Indian women who existed and also drawing upon those representations of, of hell, damnation, sacrifice from the Garuda Purana and the Agni Purana. Yeah, so it is about the kind of horrors of indenture, but also in my research I discovered there was a, through the suffering of the Indian people, a folk culture emerged in Fiji called Bedesia, and actually did pop up in other areas where it was happening, like the Caribbean and South Africa. And there were just plays, songs and poems expressing the lament, the pain and protest of the displaced Indian workers. So I've written a little piece about that. Paper minor birds laugh. The Girmitia falls from the purple sky. The Coolumba's boots fill with rain, and the crocodile spirit sweeps monsoon water off the coolie lines. Nareni, Kunti, Sukrania. Her mouths are a portal to an old time. Her faces are elephant skin and camphor, and as her leaves writhe and dance, her divine chunari falls to the dirt with red afterlife flowers. And paper minor birds, they nest in her hair. The crocodile spirit forgets the name of her village and she hums the song of death. She forgets her five forked tongues and she hums the song of death. She forgets the faces that raised her and she hums the song of death. At the flower bazaar, the crocodile spirit threads your afterlife flowers into holy garlands for hungry gods, demons, and buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. And paper minor birds, they nest in her hair. The crocodile spirit is a weaver with a snake in her throat. The crocodile spirit is an old tea head of time and space with a snake in her throat. The crocodile spirit is a revolutionary with a snake in her throat. She dances with Satan and becomes Satan. She will hold the tail of the reptile and she will be worshipped by gods and demons. But she who feeds her own belly instead of the fire will hold the hands of the servants of Yama and she will suffer. And I am Sukrania, number 39204.
I'm branded here, Sita Kirasoi. I am the god of the kitchen. I am the god of the plantation. I am the god of my Mimi. I am the god of my ghost. God or slave? But I am God, and God is slave. And I am God, and God is slave. And I am God, and God is slave. My name is Kunti. I wear bells, 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 bells around my ankles and shiny, shiny jhumka in my ears. I boarded the boat barefoot and it was the devil that took my hand. That's when I knew I should have thrown myself down the village well. Remember when the cool lumber tied us to crooked coconut trees and whipped our bare backsides with sasa brooms? Oh, moon lover, moon lover, sasa broom maker, broom maker, nangona grinder, pan eater. I should have thrown myself down the village well. And I am Nadaini, the jasmine tree. All my flowers sleep in a Nangona dream. See birds, they have two heads sometimes. I walk crookedly under stars. I hang upside down from the tail of the serpent in the South Sea sky, and Kalima caresses my skull. Braid my hairs to the tails of the water, but let me stay bound to a holy tree, Nareni. The jungle was in flames, my petticoat was in flames, and a guard with a bucket stood nearby. She was procuring abortions behind the waterfall, and her hands smell like orange rinds. And One thousand blue fish jump over viti moons into neem tree silhouettes, and we follow the kulamba who unraveled my petticoat in front of the sun. Thank you. That was beautiful. Could you talk about what that means to you? So there were three women, Nareni, Kunti, Sukrania. Nareni was beaten to the... Yes, they were, they were all real people. Yeah, Nareni gave birth to a child and was told immediately she had to go back to the fields and work. Uh, she refused to. It was within her right to say, no, I've just given birth. I'm not going to work. And the overseer beat her up really badly. And she had to walk five miles to the nearest hospital. And she became insane. Um, her child that she gave birth to was also killed by her partner. Sukrania was... She chose to be a sex worker on the plantations and was eventually killed by a jealous lover who could not deal with her independence and and how she chose to commodify her own body. She said to him, I am the king of my mind. And he killed her. Kunti, Kunti is a key figure in 
the abolishment of indenture. It was Kunti's story that made it to India, and you had protesters in India and even Australia and New Zealand. She said, this overseer tried to rape me, but I ran away. And so out of all the stories, hers took off and was used as an example, and that was ultimately what ended indenture was that our women are being raped. Let's stop this. So I wrote a choreo poem. It's set in the afterlife and it just looks into these women and their stories. There's also a chorus in the poem and they're a morally ambiguous chorus. They come in and sing songs that I've written based on the plantation songs that they did write at the time. These women, they've been dead for at least a couple of hundred years. Do you still feel an emotional connection to them and their stories? Absolutely. They went through so much and I feel like sharing their stories is so important. I really owe it to them to tell their stories. It seems as though the implementation of indenture, that colonial system of taking workers from India and, and implementing them in Fiji to use them on plantations in a form of slavery, essentially. You've said a few times that you're really, really preoccupied at the moment with hell and damnation, and you seem to link those two things together. It's an interesting thing to do, to, to be fascinated with hell. I think it started, I read somewhere, some of the labourers in Fiji had likened their experience to a river called Vaitarani. So I began looking that up and it's a river, if you're a sinner, you will see the river as being made up of boiling blood and pus and bones and there's deranged creatures trying to torture you and you'll get dragged through the river by the servants of Yama, who is the Hindu god of death. It's basically the most debauched, one of the most debauched places in in Hindu mythology that I've found. So I've been drawing a lot from the texts that talk about this particular river. I guess it corresponds to how the laborers felt about Fiji. They didn't get to enjoy the paradise that it was, they thought it was hell. And when I was reading these texts, I was telling my father about it. I was like, hey, this is what I've been reading in the Agni Purana. Isn't this crazy? And he said that his grandmother had a copy of it, which amazes me. Yeah, because there's some seriously brutal stuff in, in those books. The only people that read them are religious grandmas and me. <laughs> Is there something, because I know you mentioned, like in terms of your biography, it mentions the things that you that you think are important. You, you think that, I think shamanism seems to be important and mythology is important, but violence is important. It seems as though you're drawn to, to these stories because of the violence. I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that I've come from violence, that Indo-Fijians as a whole, yeah, we have all been born out of extreme violence and I can't ignore that. Why can't you ignore it? 
I don't know, there's some otherworldly force that's... <laughs> Is this about injustice? Do you have your own personal experiences of injustice that drive you? I think I personally haven't experienced any terrible kind of injustice. But, yeah, but I've definitely seen it around me, particularly with the older generations, like, say, the grandparents' generations, where women really are trapped in these marriages and you're in this bubble that's your whole identity. You can't get out of it. I'm very much aware of my privileges and my freedoms, but I keep looking back generation after generation to see the freedoms that these people, these ancestors, everyone before me didn't have. And I think it's important to to learn about it, to empathize with them and, and to pay my respects to them as well. Does it mean that you feel guilty because you're not in the same position as, say, grandmothers? Yes, I think in some ways I do. But more than guilt, I feel grateful. I think, you know, that is probably a natural, not a natural, maybe the way that it goes that the generation before you always has to sacrifice something in order for you to have a better life. And my parents have sacrificed a lot. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Manisha Anjali. I think your work from Sugarcane Woman, you talked about Indian women who are in exile in Fiji. What does that mean to you? Being Indigenous to the land, but living alongside and with the Indigenous people of the land. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is an exile from, I guess, the motherland, India, who, you know, most people in Fiji are so detached from and we've developed um, our own culture. There's also a lot of indentured labourers did try to go back to India, but there's this superstitious belief about the crossing of the Kalapani that if you cross, the black waters and try and come back you're going to bring bad luck to everybody in your village so a lot of time they don't want you back you had a lot of people returning back to Fiji and starting a whole new life so yeah a lot of a lot of them weren't accepted back into India uh, how does Fijian society work now like because I think Fiji Indians comprise about 37 percent of the population what is the relationship like with the rest of the population I think it's pretty complicated. <laughs> a lot of Indians have been driven out. There's been so many coups. So that's why there's been this mass migration of Indo-Fijians to other countries where, I mean, they're not necessarily persecuted in Fiji, but a lot of times made to feel unwelcome. All of the land is owned by the indigenous people so they can choose to just not renew your lease and you've got nowhere to go. Yeah, so there is that stuff happening. It also, it depends where you are. Like I know that 
there there are so many villages, so many societies where both cultures live in harmony. There's a lot of interracial marriages. It's a lot better than it was before. And and to be honest, I'm not too too familiar with the situations. I haven't been there for about three years, but I am going back next week and I hope to find out a bit more. What has happened in the past? So the first boat carrying Indian labourers arrived on the 14th of May in 1897 and Rambuka did a coup on the 14th of May in 1987 and chose that particular date to make the Indians feel unwelcome. And it's really awful because it's not like they chose to come to Fiji and and to live there and immigrate there. It was It was indenture, it was slavery, they were tricked into it. And so to conduct a coup on the date of arrival and the anniversary, that was pretty brutal. The Indians then would have been caught between colonial Britain and the indigenous Fijians, and so persecution occurs from both sides. Yeah, it does occur from both sides. Yeah, you really, you have nowhere to go. You just go wherever they'll take you. The main thing that keeps getting repeated is being trapped the people become entrapped. It doesn't have to happen in a society where there is really strongly enforced arranged marriages. But even here, 50, 60 years ago, like my grandparents' generation, women's roles were very, very well defined and very, very limited. You know, uh, the ability to apply for divorce almost non-existent, regardless of what the circumstances were. You're not just trapped within a social confine, you're trapped by the definition of your relationship, which is a marriage. What do you think of marriage? And what's your experience of relationships been? And what have you learned from them? I guess I feel like marriage is a trap. Yeah. And just from observing in my life, I'm chasing freedom. In terms of my experience with relationships, The most important thing I learned from my last relationship was a great worldly creative piece of advice when I was starting out doing poetry and performance and getting really nervous. And he just said, it's not about you. It's about the spirits. It's about the spirits that you're writing about. It's not about you. And I'll I'll never forget that. I'm so grateful. And that's probably an important piece of advice. It's obviously been a helpful piece of advice. (laughs) (laughs) See, relationships are about love, aren't they? So what do you think love is? Yeah, love means a lot to me. I definitely believe in love, but I don't believe in trapping people. I don't think... You need to marry someone to prove your love for them. And I think you can really love someone and not be with them. And that's okay. Norman Bates in Psycho had it kind of right when he said that 
to some extent people are in their own private traps and whilst they're trying to get out they just claw at the air and each other uh do you have those experiences in relationships or your relationships they sound collegial well i just feel at the moment i feel so liberated from love but in the sense that that i trapped myself because of my love for somebody if you know what i mean they weren't like you know they weren't trapping me. They didn't have rules for me or anything. They were a free spirit, but it was just my own attachment to them. Oh, that was that was my trap. Yeah. But I don't know. I just snapped out of it. <laughs> it just happened. Yeah. Outside of where communities and societies arrange marriages so that people can uh, and there's a, there's a community and societal expectation I think that's what's ha- held marriages together not only within you know where there's been a, uh, societies where there's been a more formal arrangement like in India but also around you know in Anglo-Saxon societies 60 70 years ago people wouldn't leave relationships and marriage because of the societal pressure so outside of that in a modern society doesn't everyone just trap themselves which is i think the point of my quote no i i think you're right we do trap ourselves in a lot of ways i'm very happy to say at the moment no traps for me and it's it's a really great feeling liberated yeah i mean at the same time in terms of my family, like, there's no huge pressure on me to get married or anything like that. But I know there are people who still talk. I'm 29 years old, unmarried, really old, according to them. So, but I just think it's funny. I'm just going to live my life. Thank you. So, Mark, that's lovely. I just want to live my life. Great words to finish on from Manisha there. I really enjoyed that interview. Uh, yeah, I think uh, she made a connection to her interest uh, in Carl Jung. So uh, I've been trying to read Jung myself lately and the idea of collective unconscious and what binds us all together as human beings is a, a collective understanding, the recognition of symbols and archetypes which transcend something or connect us somehow or remind us of something like a cultural memory. It does take you to that higher plane, doesn't it? And and there is definitely something in that. Mm. But we also talked about uh, grief and loss. Uh, we talked about love and we talked about sadness and how she felt about her life. And, and I, I did talk uh, about some of the conservative elements of Indian culture and what had really impressed me or what I'd taken away from her work was she didn't seem conservative at all. And and the last conversation or the end of the conversation that we had in regards to how she conceives of relationships. Mm. When I was studying, I did gendered cinema, which was a feminist study to break up the stats and the biology and everything else. And I was required, well, I wasn't required, but I chose to watched Psycho six times 
I love the Norman Bates quote there. Yeah, that everyone's in their own private traps. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was good. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's understandable about relationships that they can feel like they, like they trap us. We sometimes do damage to each other and hurt each other without meaning to, I think. Anyway, that was a great interview. I want to thank you, Mark, for conducting that and Manisha for being in deep trouble. And who have we got next episode, Mark? Our next episode, we're interviewing Tim Arrington, who's the metadata science manager of the Centre for Open Science, which is a centre in the US which is dedicated to increasing openness within science and addressing what he has called a crisis within science, which is reproducibility, that scientific studies are not often replicated by other researchers. So we have no way of knowing whether the results have some basis Right. That centre was started by a hedge fund manager called John Arnold and it's funded by the John and Lorna Arnold Foundation because they were looking at ways to invest their money through philanthropy that would be effective in science. Okay. And where's Tim Errington based? Where's the Centre for Open Science based? I think it's based in Michigan. Okay. We also covered this subject a little bit with Jennifer Byrne, didn't we? Yeah, we talked about it with Jennifer Byrne because uh, she had exposed fraud within uh, Chinese laboratories. And mm. um, we talked about reproducibility as well with Jennifer. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to that one in our next episode. So thank you for being with us in Deep Trouble. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine.